Welcome back to Plenary Session. On today's Plenary Session, I'm going to talk about this paper. This paper by the US FDA author's response rate event-free survival and overall survival in newly diagnosed acute myeloid leukemia, the US FDA's trial level and patient level analysis. This is for the oncology people out there. This is about surrogate validation. And if you're in oncology and you're in research, you won't want to miss this. So let's get started. First, I think we all need a little bit of background, okay? We need a little bit of background before we can even approach this paper. And that background is surrogate. What is a surrogate? What is a clinical endpoint? How do you do validation studies? Let me give you the rough lay of the land. A surrogate. A surrogate, as my good friend Adam Sifu from the University of Chicago says, is an endpoint the patient didn't know was important until the doctor told them it was. So your LDL cholesterol, your hemoglobin A1c. Now, we care about LDL cholesterols because we think drugs that lower LDL cholesterol also make us better off. But if you didn't know about LDL cholesterol, you wouldn't necessarily care about that. Patients care a great deal about it, but because they were taught by a doctor to care about it. Clinical endpoints are things that patients intrinsically care about. Living longer, overall survival. I think it's the most important endpoint. It's the most important, one, because it's objective, it's readily measurable. It's the most important because I think that's what a lot of people with uh, chronic or, or life-limiting diseases care about, living longer. Um, maybe even that cure fraction, which is sort of a subset of an overall survival, that there's a fraction of people who, after a treatment course is finished, have survival comparable to age sex match controls. That's the Eason and Russell 63 definition. I think people care about survival and cure. That's really important. Patients also care about health-related quality of life. They care about how they feel, living longer or living better. Those are the two things patients care about. The problem with living better is it's very difficult to measure. You know, there are a number of scales that have been quote-unquote validated. You know, validated means sort of validated against other sorts of benchmarks. Um, but do they really capture what it's like to live? Do they really capture how you feel? And the answer is, you know, maybe not necessarily. They may miss something. They may miss... Um, they may miss a lot of, uh, how, of how you feel. And so I think there's also problems in how they collect that data, et cetera, et cetera. We'll talk about that on a future episode. Back to the surrogate. Now, how do you know a surrogate is reliable? Well, a surrogate can have a lot of roles. Um, uh, well, it could be a biomarker used for a prognostic purpose. So people with this biomarker do better than people without this biomarker, but that doesn't make it a surrogate. You know, we have many such biomarkers in uh, oncology from mutation status to LDH to sometimes even the neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio. These are biomarkers that portend some prognosis. But a surrogate endpoint is something where you can say, I ran this randomized control trial and my randomized control trial showed an improvement in this endpoint, this surrogate endpoint. And because I found an improvement in this surrogate endpoint, I have some confidence that I'm also going to, down the road, make people live longer or live better. You know, that's what you're saying. The surrogate is capturing the endpoint you actually care about. It is, it is a stand-in for that endpoint. It is a surrogate for that endpoint. And I think it's really important in oncology to remember, we have two broad classes of surrogates. We have measures of tumor shrinkage. How much has the tumor shrunk? In solid tumors, it's easy. We have resist, and resist has, you know, 30% or more tumor shrinkage as a response. That's a partial response. Total tumor shrinkage and the normalization of lymph nodes is a complete response for most solid tumors, you know. Um, and in the blood-based cancers, it varies a great deal across cancers. And they're constantly thinking about how do they measure the lower limits of detection? What are the different assays we use? You know, when... Before Gleevec, you know, complete hematologic recovery was the endpoint. Do your counts normalize? Now, of course, we're looking at, you know, PCR 4.5 logfold reductions. We're looking at huge reductions in the BCR-ABLE transcript. You know, that's a different measure of response, but they're all measures of sort of the burden of disease. Now, a response can be measured 
on a cohort of people with no control arm. You know what fraction of them responded, and it's a benchmark. It's also, I think, a direct measure of drug activity, not efficacy. Efficacy is living longer, living better, or clinical benefit is living longer, living better, but it's activity. Does the drug have activity against the cancer? And that does get caught by the response rate. We have another class of endpoints, time to event endpoints, the time until something happens. And in oncology, the biggest time to event endpoint that's clinically meaningful in and of itself is overall survival. But we have a number of other time to event endpoints like this one looks at event-free survival with a few different definitions, progression-free survival. These are time to event composite endpoints, meaning that one of several things could count as the event of interest that would be scored as a progression event. So with a progression-free survival time to event endpoint, it's either the time until whichever comes first, the patient dies, there are new lesions on the scan that didn't appear there, the lesions that you've measured and marked have grown 20% from when you measured them, or if there's tumor shrinkage, the lesions have shrunk preliminarily and then grew 20% from the smallest they ever were. And that is the progression-free survival time to event composite endpoint, one of those four things, whichever comes first. Now, you might already get a sense of why PFS is not inherently meaningful. Nobody walks around saying, you know, I'm feeling okay. I'm at 118% tumor growth and then 122, oh, I feel terrible. Nobody feels that. Nobody has that drastic change at 120%. It's arbitrary. If you want to know where the cutoffs come from, I think you need to read the book Malignant, and this is also explained in Malignant. So nobody feels that. It's not inherently meaningful. It's an arbitrary thing that was selected so that we have something easily measurable. Back to this. How do you validate it? <clears throat> How do you validate these endpoints? Well, the way you validate it is a surrogate validation study. And we've been doing this work for since 2015. I think I published a paper with uh, Mauricio Borotto, Chul Kim, Andre Vandross, and Jam Internal Medicine, where we did an umbrella overview of surrogate validation studies. A few years later with Alison Haslam um, and Spencer Hay in the European Journal of Cancer, we published an update. But these are really looking at validation studies, whatever tumor type, whatever, you know, whatever setting you want, we're trying to aggregate the validation studies and make some broad comments. What is a validation study? You pick the setting, you pick the tumor type, the line, so you could say metastatic breast cancer front line, you pick the surrogate you're looking at, progression-free survival, you pick the thing you want to validate it against overall survival, and you assemble every single randomized control trial in that space. And depending on the classes of drugs that you've assembled, your correlation coefficient really only applies to that class. A lot of these validation studies are predominantly cytotoxic drugs. That validation coefficient will apply to cytotoxic drugs and metastatic breast cancer frontline and the correlation between PFS and OS. But if you invent a new class of drugs like IO, well, then those correlations may not hold because IO has very different properties than cytotoxic drugs. Cytotoxic drugs at least in the adjuvant setting as a general rule, they can increase the curative fraction, they can eradicate microscopic disease. But the same drug in the metastatic setting is incapable of increasing a curative fraction and it can't cure anybody. But IO, I think they have some fraction of durable immunity, of durable response, even in advanced settings, as we see with melanoma, for instance. That's just one way in which the relationship might not be preserved. TKIs also cannot extrapolate from cytotoxic data and vice versa. So these are important things to consider. So you collect all the randomized control trials in the space. And what do you plot? You plot on an axis, a very simple axis. On one axis, you plot the change in the surrogate endpoint. What was the change in PFS? Or what was the hazard ratio in PFS? How much did the PFS change? And you plot the difference one arm minus the other arm, experimental minus control arm. You want to know the experimental arm resulted in what change in the, in the surrogate endpoint. And on the other axis, you plot the change in overall survival, the hazard ratio overall survival, or something like that, or the log hazard ratio overall survival, some metric of how much the variable you really care about changed, the thing you care about, the clinically meaningful variable. 
and then you have a graph where each dot is one randomized control trial in the space. Each dot is a relationship between the change in the surrogate and the change in the hard outcome, and you perform regression analysis. And the R squared, the coefficient of determination, now of course the R is a correlation coefficient, the R squared, the coefficient of determination, is a measure of literally what percent of the variability in the endpoint you care about, overall survival, was captured in the surrogate endpoint, was captured by the surrogate endpoint. And there are a number of cutoffs that different groups have proposed. I like the ICWIG, the German Quality and Safety Metric Group, where they say something like, if the answer is less than 50%, your R squared is less than 50%, that's really, really bad. I mean, you've only captured about 50% of the variability in overall survival by your surrogate. That leaves 50% of the variability out there in the, o in the ether. You don't know it. And if you don't know it, you can't say with any confidence that you, know, you have a strong correlation coefficient. Some of these criteria, they look at the lower bound of the of the coefficient of determination or correlation coefficient. That's even more stringent. That's saying that we look at the 95% confidence interval around this. There are different cutoffs. But what do I like to use as sort of a benchmark? You know, I like to see, um, you know, something like 70% or 80% of the variability is being explained. You know, I like an 70 to 80%. You know, you can find the cutoff you prefer, but I like the vast majority of the variability. I, I, I like even better 90%. You're explaining most of the variability. I like a tight confidence interval. And the other thing I like is a lot of trials because I want to see that this relationship is true across a number of diverse settings. So that's how you do these studies. Enter this paper, this paper. Response rate EFSOS. This is the, the FDA analysis. Kelly no Norsworthy and Rich Pazder. One thing I want to point out is I just looked at the conflicts of interest. I'm like, oh, well, all the authors work for the FDA, so there shouldn't be any, but there are two. There are two conflicts of interest. And the reason is that two of the the, the authors of this paper have already moved on to the biopharmaceutical industry. And that's worth noting. You know, Jeff Bien and I published in the British Medical Journal a few years ago that when employees of the FDA leave the FDA, 50% of the time we can document that they work for or consulted for the biopharmaceutical industry. That's astonishingly high. Astonishingly high. That's the revolving door, people. That's the revolving door. And I think that's a core structural deficiency of the system. Nobody goes to the FDA, um, uh, or let me put it a different way, if you go to the FDA and you quickly learn that the primary destination is on the other side of the table, if you leave the FDA for a much more lucrative job, you may be reluctant to be a hardline regulator. And I think that bias is present in a lot of their decisions. Okay, let's turn to this paper. This is a paper from randomized control trials submitted to the US FDA. Now that's called a convenient sample, okay? When you do surrogate validation studies, go back and pull up the paper I did with uh, Mauricio Burroto and others in JAMA Internal Medicine. We sort these. What you really want is an analysis of both the published and the unpublished literature. And we found a few such examples. If you start to look at convenient samples, just the randomized trials on your desk, you're very likely to get a skewed correlation coefficient, not the real correlation, because the ones on your desks are not picked at random. They're probably like the most favorable, you know, um, novel product in favorable light kind of study. And that's what they're doing here. So they have eight randomized control trials. That's the second point I'll make, eight. Eight is low, you know? I mean, at some point when you do a scatter plot, there's two dots, you'll draw a line through it. Okay, doesn't mean you've found something true about the world, okay? Um, I think eight is too few. The fact it's a convenient sample, things submitted to the FDA is a, a major limitation. In fact, it's so bad that it wouldn't have been, in a normal world, it wouldn't have been published in the JCO. I mean, it's only in the JCO, I think, because they're the FDA authors. They're doing them a favor, but I think this is the kind of publication games people don't like. This shouldn't be in the JCO. It should be in a, a very low-tier journal if at all. Or to be honest, I, I mean, I might have even aborted the mission. If you can't do it right, don't do it at all. That's my philosophy. Um, I think you should just um, 
I mean, there's nothing to stop them from doing a literature search and talking to different investigators at the MD Anderson and Fred Hutch and trying to build a bigger data set. Um, that's how I would have pursued it. Okay. So the next thing they do is they realize that event-free survival does not have a standardized definition. And I think this is why they chose their eight trials, because they want to be able to play with different variations of the definition of EFS. I would say that this is also a problem. Now you are, you are getting into the multiple hypothesis testing. I mean, how many, you have eight trials, and here you'll see five different sensitivity analyses for slightly different um, ways to define the surrogate. Uh, I mean, you have so few data points um, and you have so many degrees of freedom, by chance alone, some of these analyses are going to have very tight correlation coefficients, okay? doesn't mean you're finding anything true about the world. The other thing I'd note is that the best analysis is their, fa is their first one, 0.87 R squared, so 87% of the variability, which actually looks quite good, but of course it's eight data points. And then all of the other ones look lousy, you know, quickly deteriorates. They have a problem, of course. EFS includes, you know, did you achieve CR? or CRI, incomplete hematopoietic recovery, or CRP, incomplete platelet recovery. Do you just take people who achieve CR? Do you also include those other categories? And then if they didn't achieve a CR, when do you score them as having the EFS event? Do you score them on the date they were randomized and never achieved a CR? Or in sensitivity analysis two, this is actually the kind of way I like it, you, you score them as, a, as that event, the date of permanent discontinuation of treatment or end of induction period, whichever was earlier. You know, because they didn't progress in the beginning. They hadn't, you know, had the event, so quote unquote, although they never it achieved the, the definition. You know, progression-free survival is, is to some degree, <clears throat> boy, do I hate to say it, maybe a little bit cleaner than EFS because at least we have sort of more of an aggregate agreement on what PFS is, but, you know, not perfectly clean and uh, suffers from, I think, one of the core problems with PFS, which is that if a person doesn't get the scan, then you don't know when they progress. You have to censor them and you average the people in whom you have data and that will create a huge bias if those people are not, uh, are not uh, censored at random and they almost never are. So that's what they do here. They look at the correlation between EFS um, and, and OS, more correctly. In randomized control trials submitted to them, they look at the correlation between the change in EFS and the change in OS and perform a reg linear regression analysis of that. And that correlation coefficient is a metric of what percent of the variability and change in OS in experimental arms of random in, in, in drugs uh, submitted to the FDA, is it captured by the surrogate endpoint? So they're doing a trial level, what we call trial level analysis. Um, the second problem, they only got eight trials and five of them, no, six, yeah, five of them are GO, gemtuzumab, uzigamycin. Did I say that right? Correct me if I'm wrong. Gemtuzumab. Um, Mylotarg, let's just say Mylotarg. Okay, five GO trials, one Mitostorin trials, and two CPX351. Oh, CPX351, such an incredible drug. You know, we had seven, we had three, we had seven plus three, but you made it liposomal and you mixed it in that five to one molar ratio. Wow, no. Now I'm sure that's really special stuff. Yeah, super, super special. Who would have thought that five to one molar ratio in the liposomal formulation? You definitely deserve a lot of money for that. Definitely. <laughs> hard to hard to take it i mean i mean if you ran anyway we talked about it with bernie marini the problems in that clinical study um geo you know geo was on the market for a decade at a dose that was a little stiff that dose was turned out not to not to improve outcomes they took it off the market and brought it back at a lower dose and then people were like see this is why you know we need accelerated approval blah 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 but you know giving a drug at the wrong dose for a decade that didn't help people did it you know that was a harmful dose so anyway but my point is simple I mean, how much can you extrapolate from three different drugs, eight different trials, but three different drugs, 
a liposomal formulation of two existing drugs, an antibody drug conjugate, and a, uh, a dirty promiscuous TKI mitostorin, TKI that hit everything. Um, how much can you extrapolate to other classes and other drugs? This is a very limited set. This is embarrassingly limited. I would throw this paper in the trash, to be honest. And to be honest, it's, I mean, even more honest with that. If somebody who I know on my team came to me and was like, oh, we could do this. We have these eight studies. I'd say, come on, we will embarrass ourselves. People will say, the first thing they'll say is, where are the other studies? There's so many studies in leukemia and you pick these eight? Why? That's the first thing they'll say. And I would advise this person, we shouldn't even do it. We can't embarrass ourselves like this, but it doesn't stop them. It doesn't stop them. And of course, when you look at the figures, you find, you know, they're showing you sort of the most favorable stuff. Um, you know, do I believe it? Um, not really. I mean, they've had, now they have multiple degrees of freedom in terms of what exactly is EFS. Um, they have very few trials. They're running at least five analyses. Their best analysis is the first one they present. And again, you know, you can take them at their world. That, that, that was what they pre-specified. But I'd love to see an independent registry where people have registered that they've done this. You never know. With retrospective observational studies, even registration may not be a foolproof thing because what's to stop me from just taking the data on my computer, running the analysis, saying, hey, I got something, then I go register it, and then I say I did it. There's no way to do that. You know, with a randomized trial, there's a date, and it says the date you registered your protocol, then the date you opened your study. So you can't play that game, but you can play that game with observational studies. Now, people tell me that people won't play that game. Of course people will play that game. They will say that they didn't really analyze it too much before they registered or something like that. They were just playing around with the data. Um, they'll tell themselves a story as to why they're not doing what you what they will be doing. Um, and so I, I'm not sure registration is going to solve our problem. It will be gamed. Um, why will it be gamed? Because the incentives are discovery. Anyway, back to this. They find their correlation. I actually think the most useful thing they do is figure two. Figure two, which I'm going to show, is an analysis of the overall survival prop prop probability by the best response you achieve. CR, CRI, or CRP, or um, you didn't achieve a CR, um, no response, they call it. And, um, you know, if you didn't achieve a response in these studies, um, and this is, this is not a, a between, between trial arm comparison, this is just an aggregate data. And this is really analyzing it as a, as a prognostic marker. And it is clear that if a patient achieves a CR, they have a prognostically better outcome than if they've achieved a CRI or CRP. And I think that's interesting. And it actually gives you some magnitude and maybe can help counsel the person, the person in your office who achieves a CR or CRI who would have been otherwise trial eligible. Let's put that in there too, because this is only applicable to the trial eligible people, which not a lot of people. Um, you could use this to sort of get some benchmark as to what survival they might expect. So I find that interesting, but it doesn't validate it as a surrogate. It's validating it as a prognostic marker. Just like these myeloma doctors, they keep saying these MRD, MRD, people with the MRD negativity live longer than people without MRD negative. That's just a prognostic analysis. That's not a surrogate validation analysis. You need to show across many, many randomized control trials in myeloma, drugs that achieved higher fractions of MRD also achieved improved overall survival. And the delta MRD and the delta OS when plotted on axis had an R squared coefficient of 0.9, suggesting that 90% of the variability in survival was explicated by the, by the variability in the surrogate endpoint. They are not even close to doing that, which we'll talk about. All right. More thoughts? I don't know. I don't think I have a lot more thoughts. I mean, I think the thing when it comes to acute leukemia, you know, 
the FDA is bending over backwards to make more surrogate endpoints so they can approve new drugs. They don't need to do that. It's a it's a life life threatening condition. It has a steep Kaplan Meier curve. Um, if you show that Kaplan Meier curve to a cardiologist, they'd say, "Oh, we could find some product that would improve overall survival pretty easily." And I think we could do that too. These drugs cost a horrendous amount of money. Um, patients getting induction treatments are often in hospitals. They can easily conduct randomized control trials powered for overall survival. Even CR, CRI, CRP are probably, uh, well, I know they are. They're not reliable surrogates. They're not direct measures of patient benefit. Um, you can just run a trial for overall survival. You don't need a surrogate endpoint. And the next point I'll make is a point that Robert Kemp made to me many years ago, which was that if you really think about the body of randomized control trials you need to generate to validate the surrogate endpoint, we're not just talking about eight. You're talking about maybe hundreds of studies. And you'll want these to reflect modern drugs. So to some degree, the older studies from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you know, they're not going to be as applicable to the modern drugs. You'll want a lot of studies in the modern era measuring both endpoints. And the truth is, by the time you do that, you may have moved on to new classes entirely. And so the real point is that surrogate validation is almost like a pipe dream. By the time you validate a surrogate that you can hang your hat on, you've moved on so far. And you've run so many trials measuring overall survival, you might as well just measure the thing you directly care about. Um, overall survival here, even in like the most favorable cohort, you know, median is three years. The next fallacy people say is, well, it would take three years to find the survival benefit since the median is three years. You know, who, who is teaching these people this? You do know. The median does not have to be reached for an overall survival benefit to be demonstrated. The median does not have to be reached for the overall survival benefit to be demonstrated. You do know that because you see a trial like Jupiter. Jupiter is um, rosuvastatin in elevated CRP patients. The median, the, the median survival, I don't think it may not have been reached to this day. But when they published that significant overall survival result, they had 90 plus percent of people alive in both arms. It was just a higher fraction. You do not need to wait for the median. You even know that from myeloma, VMP versus MP. Pull that trial up. They didn't reach the median before they announced results. You do not need to wait for the median. Don't say it takes until the median until the result appears. It does not. That's a fallacy. Whoever taught you that is a, totally wrong. You can crank up the sample size and you'll find it very quickly if it does exist. But far more likely, you may find the harder thing, which is that you may improve things like CRI and CRP um, uh, and time to relapse, but you may not actually make people live longer, live better. And if you say, well, I delayed the time to relapse, but um, you know, in the control arm, all the salvage drugs accounted for the same survival, so it diluted my treatment effect, you're also making a great fallacy, right? Because um, if all those other drugs are so good that the patient lived just as long and just as well, um, you know, why do they need your new costly drug up front? Doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, why would I buy a special $10,000 bottle of Gatorade that makes me run the first seven miles of the marathon faster, but then I'm really, really slow for the rest of the marathon and I finish at the same time? If I finish at the same time, why would I spend all that money on your fancy Gatorade? And similarly, why would I spend all that money for the first EFS when it's all going to catch up to me? It's all going to be this, uh, a wash in the end. And then you might say, well, the time until the first EFS has better quality of life. But what you really want to do is measure quality of life over the first whole journey, because the beginning might have great quality of life. The first seven miles might be great, but the last rest of the marathon might be absolute misery, agony, tears streaming down your face. Whereas in the other arm, you're running at a more sustained pace the whole time, and it's not as miserable on the back end. So if you measure quality of life just in the first seven miles on the marathon, sure, the Gatorade looks great. But why would you do that? You want to measure the whole race. And if anything, people are probably going to, well, if anything... Yeah, it's the whole thing that matters, I mean. Okay, and the race example, uh, the analogy drifted because uh, there's a difference there. Okay, the last thing I'd say, daisy chaining surrogate endpoints. 
I see people publishing papers. Well, does MRD predict PFS in myeloma? Are you out of your mind? Does PFS predict OS? Does PFS have surrogate validation? Val uh, is PFS a valid surrogate? Well, Mani will publish his paper very soon, but he's analyzed it, I think, as well as anyone could. And the answer will be sobering. And so daisy-chaining surrogate endpoints is the silliest thing I've ever seen. Does PathCR uh, predict EFS? Does PathCR have validation for EFS? Does MRD have validation for PFS? How about does MRD have validation for overall survival? The bottom line. I mean, there's no secret why they're doing this. They're doing this to have more drug approvals. It's a lower regulatory bar. It's not enough that the companies make hand over fist with you know anticipated life cycle earnings of over $10 billion per product, even with an outlay of probably less than a billion for cancer drugs, as Sean Milan Cody and I showed in JAM Internal Medicine. That's not enough for them. That's not enough for them. They want a lower and lower regulatory bar. They want a bar that's not a metric of how well people feel or function. They want a bar that's achievable. And you know what else they want? They don't want no bar at all. If you had no bar at all, and anyone could sell any product based on any hype or any bioplausibility, you won't be able to charge $30,000 a month for your product. You need some bar, some bar to keep the little fish out and let the big players in. And then the big players can go to Medicare and take the squeeze on it and squeeze all this money out of insurance companies, et cetera. You need a, some bar, but you don't want that bar to be so high you actually prove you improve outcomes for people because then you might not achieve it. Biology is difficult. Things that look seductive that lower your LDL don't always make you live longer. We've learned that. Uh, uh, phenofibrate anybody. Things that look like they improve lipids don't always make you live longer. Things that look like they improve CR rates don't always make you live longer, live better. And so they can't have that as a bar because they'll have fewer products, so less way to make money. So actually, this is a sweet spot for profitability. What does that mean? I think we have to ask ourselves a core question, which is why is a study with eight data points and five different ways of putting a line through eight data points in the JCO? Why is this run by the FDA? Why are they not trying to collect more study, more studies and actually get some more um, representative correlation coefficient or coefficient of determination, um, and, and whether or not this is even worth pursuing with a highly lethal disease, you know? And if you really wanted to, let's be honest, if you really, let, let's imagine you lived in my world where you want to bring your drug to market in leukemia, you got to show me an OS benefit or you ain't going to get to play. And you're the drug company. And I really said, we're, we're done with this CR. We're done with this EFS, OS or nothing. What would you do? Would you really run trials and wait for the median of three years? No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't do that. That would be the dumbest thing for you to do. The first thing you would do is simple. You'd say, boy, there are lots of people with leukemia. Let's just take the ones that are really old and really high risk and run it in them first and just establish we have an OS benefit so we get on the market. Then we can talk about younger people and people with lower risk leukemia. So you'll target the high risk group and you'll run your trial. And ironically, you do know that the age of leukemia is a disease of the elderly. So you'll actually be hitting the, the correct ages, the people who are actually suffering, who are actually sort of historically unrepresented on these studies. You'll hit those people and you'll demonstrate you have an OS benefit. And if you do, you'll try to march it down. Just like we know statins improve outcome after MI with high cholesterol in an older person. But do we really know that statins improve outcome for an 18-year-old with high LDL? You know, we don't because it's a much lower risk population. We'll march those trials outward and try to make it more broader. Um, but if you find that it's negative, it's null in the 80-year-old, you'll be done. You will probably throw away your drug development pipeline. You'll look for a better drug because it can't even improve survival in an older person or a person with poor risk cytogenetics. What would it do in a, in a healthier person? Um, Alternatively, you might have some biological rationale for why you'd want to try it in the younger person for you to do that. But I think either way, you're going to get more important information. And then the final thing is you're actually going to run trials capable of someday performing a surrogate validation study. The trials will actually have both endpoints and you can perform that regression analysis and see what the correlation is. So 
Response rate EFS overall survival and newly diagnosed AML, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration analysis. It shouldn't have been in the JCO. It's very fishy. Two of the employees have already moved on to pharma, which is what most people, I mean, this is just a tiny snapshot of their career, the paper they just finished, and then they already moved on. And, you know, of the people who leave it, it's going to be something like 50 to 60% are going to work for a consult for pharma. Um, they are clearly here. And in other work we've done, Emerson Chen and I have documented the number of different disease types for which surrogates have been accepted in jam internal medicine. And we show that it is rapidly growing. They have an appetite for accepting surrogates. And it's hard to look at the agency in cancer and believe this is an agency whose primary goal is to ensure that drug products that reach the American people are safe and effective. That's their, ta that's their task. Safe and effective. Safety and efficacy can only be thought of as uh, two sides of the same coin. They're always thought of together. And what I think that means to me is that the drugs you approve, that they are drugs that when used in the public, they make people better off than, than worse off. That's what it means to me. And to do that, you need to do randomized control trials, testing them against the best available standard of care. You need to do them of people who look like average Americans. You need to measure the things you actually care about. They don't do any of those things. They don't use the best standard of care. They use straw man control arms. We just saw with uh, Ivocitinib, Aza versus Aza, you know, the Agile study on this channel. Um, they don't use representative patient populations. They keep saying they're going to, they'll never do, they just never do it. They never deny the application for that. Except, I mean, the only time they do is when it's just one country like China. They really just don't like that Chinese antibody for whatever reason. But, you know, when it's otherwise absolutely unrepresentative of the United States, they're happy to like rubber stamp that. I really still don't understand that, uh, that Chinese, uh, antibody example, but we wrote about it in, uh, Lancet Oncology with David Benjamin. Um, uh, so it's hard to say that they're, ch and, and, and the surrogates, they are accepting surrogates that are really uh, absolutely unvalidated and don't meet regulatory requirements as we showed with Chul Kim in Mayo Clinic proceedings in 2016. So it's hard to believe that they're fulfilling their task of regulating products in a way that improves outcomes for American people. Instead, it makes a lot more sense if you view their task as, we're creating enough roadblocks and hurdles so that we don't have a total free-for-all market a free-for-all market will plummet prices of cancer drugs. No one could justify charging so much. There'll be so many entrants. There'll be such poor data that it will be literally a battle of marketing and somebody might win with absolutely useless products and just good marketing. They don't want that. They also don't want to have a bar high enough that people actually live longer, live better, because that will dramatically reduce the biomedical pipeline. Very, very few of these drugs will clear that hurdle and that will stifle profits. They don't want that. They're the sweet spot, the sweet spot for graft. The sweet spot for companies is where we are now. A low enough bar that you can clear it by changing some biomarker without ever knowing you actually make people live longer, live better, run really sort of, um, is this evidence-based medicine or is this the, the, the veneer of evidence-based medicine? I think this is the veneer. You know, eight data points analyzed five different ways. I mean, get are you, uh, are you missing the, the lion's share of the data is not included in your analysis? It's the veneer. And so if you view the FDA as sort of an arm of the industry, most of them going to go work there anyway, and they really do receive most of their, their revenue from the industry through PDUFA fees, then it starts to make more sense. Um, uh, like a lot of regulatory agencies, it has been captured, and it has viewed the, the entity that it was supposed to regulate is now its client, and that's how the FDA operates. And I think it will continue to operate like that for a while longer, because both political parties are addicted to the pharmaceutical largesse. Um, but I do think it won't operate like that forever because we are really reaching sort of a cataclysmic crisis. I mean, um, you know, a society can't spend extraordinary levels of GDP on healthcare indefinitely without absolute breaking 
And uh, I think between COVID exacerbating some of those trends and, and, and what's been going on, the low regulatory hurdle for a lot of COVID products, I think more and more people are seeing it. And I think it is on the collision course for the inevitable, um, which, is at, which is, I think, a total regulatory shakeup. And um, the problem with that is it's a, it's a, it's, it will be absolutely volatile and unpredictable. Very easily you will get a regulatory system that's even worse than what we have now. Very easily that could happen. Um, there's a small chance you could get a regulatory system that's better. Um, but I do think it's going to be sort of like a punctuated equilibrium kind of scenario where a lot of stasis and then poof, something big is going to happen and it's going to have a total regulatory shakeup. So those are my thoughts. This paper, you have to think about it in the context of surrogates, prognostic variables, MRD is definitely prognostic. CR, CRI is prognostic. CR is better than CRI, and CRI is better than no response. Prognostic. But is EFS a surrogate? If you bring me an absolutely new drug and you tell me I improved EFS, can I say that you're going to improve OS for my patient? Well, I would be hanging my hat on GO, mitostorin, and CPX, and eight studies. And I don't think I could say that because I would have to insert all of the appropriate caveats and uncertainty. So I don't think I could say that at all. The mere fact it's published in a top journal without this kind of critical commentary speaks volumes. The mere fact they're doing this analysis when they could be doing a broader analysis speaks volumes. The fact that two of the, two of the authors already work for the companies speaks volumes. You know, I think you have the whole story of biomedicine right here. So on that positive note, plenary session, it's back oncology. If you like this, uh, if you want to do a journal club at your place, at your, um, you know, Hemonk program, uh, official or unofficial, I'm always interested. You know, you bring the papers. I'm happy to take you through my thinking. Make me read a paper I don't, I wouldn't normally read. Happy to do that. So plenary session extends the offer. Journal club, informal or or official. We could do informal. You can always create a Zoom. Nobody stops you. Record the Zoom and put post it. It'd be a great discussion. So on that positive note, you know what to do. You like this. I would say leave a review on iTunes if you haven't done it yet. You know, we it really does help. It helps new people find this. Recommend it to a colleague in oncology. That really helps a lot. And uh, you can also support the podcast directly on Patreon, but I think you might be more interested to uh, follow on Substack because Substack, you're going to get a lot more of my thoughts and commentaries. Um, and occasionally YouTube, there's a lot more content on YouTube than I'm being putting out on this feed. Um, why? Because some of these are very short segments. They don't really, they're not conducive to podcast listening, but I recommend that. Um, yes, it will lean a little bit more COVID, but I think that will correct with a little bit of time once, once the irrationality gets behind us. So on that positive note, until next time.